Um, I'm back here in, uh, in the pulpit with you guys, and uh, after this, uh, some of the other pastors will be teaching, but it is my joy to bring us back to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah. And uh, we've been here um, on this long journey seeing um, Nehemiah the governor take the ruins of Jerusalem, uh, rebuilding them back, and as we're going to see today, rebuilding a people. Uh, But before we do anything, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we will jump right on in. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Father, we pray that as we open your word, that we would behold spiritual truths. Father, we pray that uh, we would have our heart changed. We pray, Lord, that we would be like uh, the listeners of Nehemiah. Lord, that we would hear your word, that we would, that we would weep, that we would see truth, and that our lives would leave changed. We love you, Lord. We give you all glory. Amen. Amen. Well, I love to talk about church history, and last week we talked a little bit about early church history, talking um, about the uh, third century. Um, and today I want to bring you to the 1800s. 1800s. During the 1730s and 1740s, a colonial America experienced a period of unprecedented conversion, renewed spiritual interest, and a newfound love for the Word of God. Churches grew, and it is still considered to this day the greatest religious movement in American history. It was marked by the preaching of men such as George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, Samuel Davies, and many more. Whitfield was said to have a powerful voice, an engaging and magnetic style that could melt hearts and win souls. His voice was so powerful that when Whitfield arrived to preach in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin, though he was a deist and not a Christian, he commented that in order to hear just how powerful Whitfield's voice, he engaged in an acoustic experiment in which he walked backwards away from Whitfield until he could no longer hear his voice intelligibly. By Benjamin Franklin's estimation, around 30,000 people could hear him preach without any amplified sound. Whitfield made his way preaching through Georgia, the Carolinas, Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New York. He opened the Bible and he preached the text of Scripture. Whitfield was invited to churches. He was invited to college campuses like Harvard and Yale, which originally had been founded not as schools for uh, secular learning, but seminaries to train pastors. And in his time recently, uh, they had moved to being secular. Wherever Whitfield went, he uh, would draw a large crowd where people would come in from the nearby towns and the farms of the countryside, people clamoring to hear the word of God preached. One observer pointed out that at going to one of Whitfield's outdoor preaching sessions, he said it was a steady stream of horses and their riders. And when Whitfield left New England, having just preached for a month, traveling up and down New England, one writer put it, he had churned a spiritual hurricane that the historians call the Great Awakening. It was during that time that Jonathan Edwards and other ministers began to also follow suit and began to preach open air. And it was in Enfield, Connecticut, in the summer of July 7th, during which about a week ago we would have celebrated about 280 years from that day, 
Now, Jonathan Edwards preached his most famous sermon, one that many of you might be familiar with, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's there that he preached and he told those listening that God in his mercy was dangling our lives like an spider, a detestable spider over a candle, that if God were to just at any moment release his judgment, we would face the full wrath of God. He said that God's judgment was over us as if we were standing on rotten wooden floorboards that could give away at any moment over a burning pit. And it is there that he called people, he called souls, to give their life to Jesus Christ. And in the span of less than two years, from 740, 1740 to 1742, the Spirit of God moved between at least 25,000 to 50,000 people to join the church membership along New England coast, which doesn't even account for the souls of those who were already saved, their renewed spiritual vigor, and those who uh, would have their lives forever changed. It was a time of unprecedented movement of the Spirit, mass conversion, and a renewed interest in the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. And today, as we turn our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8, we are going to see a renewed interest in the Word of God through the preaching of the Word of God among God's people. Today, historians often call the Great Awakening a revival, and whatever you want to call this, what we see here today in Nehemiah was not too different from what we saw back in the 1740s. What we're going to see today in our passage, we're going to see a people who were once in exile, people who were once outcast, the mockery of nations, their city destroyed, and now against all odds, we will see these people go from spiritual rubble to spiritual revival. In our text, um, what we are going to see here in Nehemiah chapter 8 is that the walls have been built. Nehemiah, as we've been talking about, a government worker, not a priest, not a, uh, not a warrior, a king, just a guy in a government job, a governor. Against all odds, he has built this wall. Nehemiah chapter 4, we saw the external threats of the opposing armies who said they would attack Nehemiah at any moment. In chapter 5, we saw the opposition was internal, right, as discouragement had infiltrated the camp, and as wealthy Jews, the same Jews who had been helping build the wall, had been enslaving the people of God to make a quick buck. Then last week we saw in chapter 6, if they couldn't take down uh, the congregation, the people, they would go after their shepherd. They would make multiple assassination attempts. They would say, let's have a peace meeting. Uh, They would say, let's go inside the temple. There was widespread conspiracy, spy games, and all kinds of different opposition. And in spite of all of that, Nehemiah keeps his hand to the plow. Nehemiah continues to work. Nehemiah mobilizes the people of God because Nehemiah was reminded that the building of the wall was not his passion project. It was not his pet operation. Chiefly, the rebuilding of the wall was about God's glory. It was about fulfilling what God had promised to do in the book of Deuteronomy as seen through the prayer of Nehemiah chapter 1, when he prays that he would be able to fulfill God's command that if people turn back to him, he will rebuild the walls and resettle and rebuild his people. This was a mission about the glory of God. This was about Nehemiah doing a great work for God, and every prayer that Nehemiah prays is answered. 
He asks for his hands to be strengthened. He asks for favor in the sight of the king. And he asks that uh, the shame of those who opposed him would fall on their heads, and we see that. So impossible was this task that when the wall was completed, the conclusion of the nations, and everyone who saw it, who experienced it, who heard it, was that there's a God in Israel, and that God had helped them. And then in chapter 7, we saw that for Nehemiah, it wasn't just about wall building. It was about worship. As soon as the walls are built, he gets the people together. He gets priests. He gets Levites. He gets the singers. And he gets them together because what it's always been about is not a project, but it's been about praise. It's been about worship. And it's here in chapter 8 that we come in which we find ourselves, in which we will see Nehemiah move the people from rubble to spiritual revival. The way we're going to be moving through a text, and I'll read it as we go, um, is we're going to see three parts. Uh, This is a narrative, as Nehemiah is. In verses 1 through 8, we will see the attentive assembly. And then in verses 9 through 12, we will see the weeping over the word. And then in our third section, we will see the celebration of the community. Let's look at the attentive assembly, verses 1 through 8. Here's what it says. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, Messiah on the right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peleah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. All right, in our text today, we start ourselves with the attentive assembly. The walls are built. The people have been resettled. A verse ago, we find the seventh month had come, and the people of Israel were in their towns. We may read that, and we're like, interesting historical information. But we find is that it says that the people gathered on the seventh month on the first day. This would have been the day of the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets, also known as Rosh Hashanah, the head year. This was a time in which God's people were called to gather together, and so that's exactly what they do. Up until this time, they've been soldiers, they've been builders, they've been in fear for their life, 
Uh, but there's no indication that worship at this scale has uh, happened, and really not ever. In this passage, what we see time and time again, one of the emphases of this entire chapter is the people. Um, throughout this chapter, say the people asked, the people gathered, the people told Ezra to bring the book. There is an emphasis on this congregation. And what we see here is it says they gathered as one man. The people of God, for the first time, they gather with one heart, one mind, one soul, and they gather together, and they tell Ezra. Ezra comes back. We haven't seen Ezra here in the book of Nehemiah. This is kind of like the point in this is like the, the second part of this is like the second part of a movie where a character in the first movie you may have forgotten comes back. Ezra has not been mentioned, but he was prominent. He was the main character in the book of Ezra. He was a priest. And we're going to see he's someone who preached and taught the word. Well, he comes and it says, by request of the people, he brings the book. It is by the request of the people that it says that they told Ezra, we want to hear what God has to say because the people of God were hungry. We're going to see later on that it says that they were attentive. Uh, it says the ears of all the people, verse 3, were attentive to the book of the law. I mean, how's, how's, how's that for, uh, for us? You know, as we think about ourselves, you know, how often, perhaps for us, do we show up on Sunday and we hear the word of God because the, the, the pastor, the preacher brings the book, but how often is it that we want that, if we're honest? How often do we come on Sundays in anticipation of the word of God, excited to hear what God had to say? Well, they have them bring the word of God, and they have them open to the law of Moses, the Lord had commanded Israel. He has them open the word of God, because probably for some time they had not had access to it, um, at least not access in, as Israel should have. They had been exiled in captivity. Probably many of them had gone, uh, had gone the way of following what was socially easy, following the gods of Babylon, the gods of Persia, getting along with everyone else. And they're bringing themselves back to what God has to say. It's there that it says that Ezra brought before the assembly men and women. This was the word of God for all people, for everyone. We see it's not just for scholars or super smart people or super holy people. It's for everyone. Everyone. The word of God was made available. And it says that he read it facing the square from morning until midday in the presence of all the people. Now, I don't know if you kind of catch that, but that's six hours long. That's a six-hour-long worship service. For any of you guys who may feel that our sermons here are long, imagine being out there. Six hours. No air conditioner. And as we're going to see, they were standing. There was no children's ministry. There was no nursery. There was no VBS. It was the people of God hearing the word of God. And we estimate there was probably around 40,000 or so people. The assembly together, as we see in chapter 7, says the assembly was 42,000. So at least something around that, depending on who showed up. Six hours. And I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, for me, uh, an hour-long sermon is, is, is pretty good. Hour and a half is pretty long. Um, you know, I can't imagine what that would feel like. But they were excited. They were desiring for the Word of God. And it makes me ask myself... Do I approach the word of God that way? 
Are we hungry to hear what God has to say? Or have we become so used to God speaking every Sunday through our pastors that the Bible is so readily available in, in our hands and on our phones that we just, yeah, God speaks. You know, it's a normal thing. And yet what we see is that the people of God were attentive. They were all listening. They were all interested. They wanted to know, what does our God have to say? They were interested. Verse 4, it says, And Ezra stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. They had made for this purpose. Now, it's interesting uh, because when I first read this, I thought perhaps that you know, this was just a spontaneous kind of gathering. Uh, but at least to some degree, um, the people of God prepared for this day. It probably was no um, coincidence that this, this gathering was on Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, even though we don't see a full Feast of Trumpets per se happening. What we see happening is that the people of God prepared themselves for worship. When we look at how they were attentive, we have to ask, how did they get there? And I think to some degree, it's because they prepared their hearts. They physically built a platform at least big enough to have Ezra stand above the people and, along with 13 others at his left and right hand. And I, we don't know how big it was, but it says that this platform was tall enough so that he could be seen by all the people. And so what we see is that the people of God, they prepared their hearts and their lives for this day of worship. At least some men came together to build it, it reminds us, as we look at this passage, that as we come to hear the word taught and preached, I think there is a lesson to be learned that we need to come attentive by preparing our own hearts when we hear the word of God preached. That we need to prepare, we could say, a platform for the word of God so that our hearts are ready. When we come to church on Sundays, it makes me ask questions like, you know, it do I come to church ready to hear the word of God, or do I come with all my messiness and thinking about what I'm going to do after church, thinking about the plans I want to make afterwards, thinking about this and that, or do I come to hear the word of God prepared, having built a platform in my own soul to say, I want to hear the word of God? Are our hearts attentive? Now, what Ezra does is he preaches, or you could say he opens the word of God. And it's here that it says, He opened the word of God in the sight of all the people. He blesses the Lord, the great God, and the people answer, Amen, Amen. He reads the word. Now, we're not exactly sure how exactly this happened. Um, there's different opinions on how it happened, but probably most likely uh, what happened was Nehemiah would read the word, and then what would happen is the Levites, it would says, would go around explaining, giving the sense so that the people understood the reading. So it was kind of like this uh, like telephone preaching where Ezra would preach the word, or he would read the word, and then it says the Levites, and we get a list of all those people in verse 7, and they would go around and they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So everyone was standing, and as Ezra would read the word, the Levites were going around explaining the text. And this is important because it reminds us that it's not enough to just read the Word of God and be done with it. That to really understand the Word of God as it should have been, it is to understand it. We're reminded that the Word of God is not special because uh, simply by reading it, uh, it bestows blessing like a 
like a magical spell or a special incantation. Uh, the word of God needs to be understood by God's people. And so the Levites go and they explain the word of God. And here we get a beautiful illustration of how God's people are to respond to the word. They read it, they explain it, and then as we're going to see later, they respond. And it says what's, what's chiefly important here in verse 8, it says they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense. That's the meaning. And all the people understood the reading. What we see here is the importance of explaining the Bible. Um, when we think of how hard our, uh, you parents work to explain the Bible to your children, when we think of how hard our Sunday school teachers work, how hard our pastors work, what we see is that the Word of God is important so that it's understood, so that it can be put into our own lives. And that's exactly what happens here in Nehemiah. And the people here are all attentive. So what actually did Ezra read? Well, it says he read from the book of the Law of Moses. And some think that might have just been the book of Deuteronomy, but most likely it was selections from the book of the Pentateuch. And though it might make sense for him to read all of it, it would have been far too long for him to read it, especially if Nehemiah is teaching it and the Levites are then explaining it. So what would Ezra have read? He would have reminded them of Genesis, the reminder that God is creator, sustainer, and sovereign over all things. That even though Adam had sinned in the garden, that even though Joseph had been sold by his own brothers into slavery, that even though sin had entered the world, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. He would have included Exodus, the reminder that when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, it was also God who delivered them with a strong and mighty hand. That even when Israel grumbled and complained and rebelled against God, it was God who continued to pursue a relationship with his people by establishing the tabernacle, which was a predecessor to the temple, so that God could dwell with his people. Leviticus, the reminder that for a holy God to dwell among his people, he had called his priests and his people to live in a way that was holy and categorically set apart from all the surrounding nations. Numbers, the reminder that when Israel was on the way to the promised land, Israel rebelled against God time and time again, such that he felt the need to display his justice, but he held some of it back so that rather than destroying all the people, he destroyed only a generation by making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they died out and the children were given a second chance. Deuteronomy, the retelling of that law to that new generation, to that new generation so that their children would not make the same mistake as their fathers. It was the call to not waste their second chance and to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. The people of God were being given a second chance, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth Ezra's reading of Scripture would have reminded the people of God that they were sinful. They had been sinful. Their fathers were sinful. They were sinful. It was the reminder that they had another opportunity to follow God. And as a result of what Ezra preaches and what he teaches, what happens and the response that we get is the weeping over the word. The weeping over the word. 
This is what it says in verses in verse 9 to 12. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, the Levites who taught all the people, said all to the people, this, is the day, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Nehemiah has unloaded the word of God. And the response among the people, the response among the people is widespread Repentance. It is a physical response of mourning. People have lifted their hands. They have prayed to God. They have stood in reverence to the word of God. And now they are weeping because it's personal, because it's real. Because after reading all of that, after exposing who God is and who these people are, these people realized what each and every one of us who have known, who know Christ, have realized, which is that they're all sinners. They were reminded that they were broken people. The Word of God had left their heart in shambles because that's what the Word of God can do when it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. They realized that they were wicked. Perhaps the nobles who came to the assembly, if they did come, they would have weeped over realizing that when the building of the wall happened, they didn't put their hand to the work, so the men of Tekoa had to work harder. Perhaps some of the men of Tekoa were convicted because they had... They had felt the conviction of feeling that singe of bitterness towards those nobles, or perhaps they felt the sense of sinful superiority. Perhaps those who had complained and, and challenged Nehemiah or just doubted God were convicted of their lack of faith. Still more would have been convicted of how during their time in Babylon they had failed to trust God, how they had trusted in the other gods of, of coin or the gods of the nations and still more were simply convicted because the God who had loved them time and time again, they had not lived for. And just like the Israelites in Nehemiah's time, so we also must ready, readily acknowledge, everyone in this room, that there is no one in this room who is not broken and not sinful. No one who is not needing to weep over the word of God. It is the reminder that despite all our all that we have, all our good grades, our accolades, our jobs, our achievements, our influence, behind all the things we have in this world, the things that make us feel good and strong and powerful, it is the reminder that when the word of God is brought before us, that we are broken sinners desperately in need of grace. But Nehemiah, or rather, the P Nehemiah and Ezra, and the, scri the scribe, and the Levites, they remind the people, this day is holy, even though the people are all weeping. And notice it's, it's everyone weeping. It is, it is an entire and complete uh, physical response of the people. We see that all of them are moved. And what the leaders say, they say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and do not weep. 
He tells them and compels them that this is a good day. This is a day that is set apart. It was Rosh Hashanah. It was a holy day. It was God fulfilling his word to bring his people back, both physically and spiritually. And he says, do not mourn or weep. And the, the mourning must have probably been loud and widespread and even distracting because three times they say, do not mourn. Three times they say it. And instead they say, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, send portions. In other words, celebrate. This is a good day. It is the reminder that, as, that to have godly and true repentance, true godly repentance, that yes, it breaks at the word. It recognizes our own sinfulness. It sees us for who we are, detestable in God's sight. And yet, true repentance never stays purely at weeping. That repentance, that it, it, when it understands its place before God, it has the ability to move our hearts to rejoice in knowing that our God has shown mercy and kindness. And so what he tells them to do is to celebrate, to eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. That was saying to eat the best portions, go and celebrate. This is a good day. Do not be grieved. And he says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, three t- multiple times, again, he has said, do not weep. It seems like the people just felt like they had no other thing they could do but weep. They were broken over the word of God. They were shattered. And so to remind them of how they could have strength to move on, he says, the joy of the Lord is what gives you strength. That word for strength can mean fortress, protection, security. I think strength is a good rendering. The idea here is that when you lack the ability to move on and to follow after God, it is the joy you find in knowing God that gives you strength to push on and to move on. And so he says, have a meal. And he even says, knowing that there are poor people, that if there are people who do not have food, to send portions to them and to make great rejoicing. I want to make a quick side note just to point out how in how God chooses us chooses to uh, work through us it's biblical for us after we hear the word of God to have fellowship meals Uh, we see that all throughout scripture food was a part of rejoicing in God what God was doing Uh, we see that this is not just a a means of uh, pragmatically just well people have to eat every so often but food had always been a part of God's people getting together In Leviticus 23, there are multiple feasts that are talking about the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Booze, which we'll see in a moment. Esther records the Feast of Purim, and Jesus is often recorded as having meals after teaching the Word of God. The church took the Lord's table, and so we see fellowship around food was a biblical concept. Uh, It was an idea of celebrating that when they understood the Word of God declared to them, food and fellowship was a natural and proper response. It, it, it suggests to us here and today that when we have opportunities, as we're about to have, to have snack time, and we have food and fellowship, we didn't have wine and things like that out there, but we have donuts or things like that and coffee, um, that the goal is not just food. The, the, the goal is to rejoice because we heard the word, that we understood it, that we can talk about it. What did you understand? What stood out to you? How was your soul moved? That when those servants who put church lunch together every other week, which is just a labor of love, 
This is not simply about just putting a meal on the table. It's not just about feeding kids and uh, just, well, it's 12 o'clock or so, we have to put food on the table. There is a biblical component to rejoicing because the words had been understood and declared to us. So thank you to every, all of you who have put food at our church tables and made fellowship possible. Well, the weeping of the community then transitions because they go and they rejoice. And that day continues, it finishes, and rejoicing is done through all the people. But then we get to the second day. And after seeing the weeping over the word, we're going to see the celebration of the community. The celebration of the community in chapter 8, verses 13 to 18. Let me read this for us. It says, On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord of God had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all the towns of Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, go out of the hills and bring branches of olives, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Let me stop there. I'll pick up in a moment. It's here that on the second day, on the second day, when... Maybe perhaps they might have expected things to end when maybe after the excitement was gone, after the hype was over, what we see is that there's a special Bible study that's going on. It was a Bible study with the heads of the father's houses. That would have been the clan leaders and all the people, of all the people, with the priests and the Levites. And they came together with Ezra. So the clan leaders, the priests, the Levites, they came together with Ezra the scribe, and they came to study the word of God. This was them probably retraining, re-remembering, equipping them on how to teach their clans, their families, their households. Built in here is the implicit reminder how important it is for us to be teaching the word of God in our homes and not just in our churches. Because these clan, these, these clan leaders surely wouldn't have been teaching the word in the same way that the Levites or the priests did. And this is an encouragement and a reminder to every father in their home that the Word of God needs to be preached not only on Sunday, but Monday and Tuesday and all the way through Saturday. The reminder that to all you mothers who work so hard to instill Bible lessons into our children at a young age, that what you are doing is feeding them, feeding them with the Word in only the way that the Word can. And they come together and they make a great discovery. As they're studying the Word, it says they found as if they found something that they had not realized, written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people should dwell in booths. The Feast of Booths, or also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It was here that we see that God's people realized, they looked at the word and they said, guys, we are, there's something we've missed. There's something we haven't done. There's something that we still have opportunity to do. It is one of God's Chosen religious feasts. And so what they do is they look to themselves and say, there's still time. There is still time. And so what they do to themselves is they open the book of Leviticus. And they would have gone to Leviticus 23. And Leviticus 23 would have given them instructions on having 
the Feast of Booths. In verses 39 to 43, it would have told them how they were called to feast and they were to dwell in booths, tabernacles. We could say communal camping. And rather than people, the people of God saying, well, you know, I mean, it's something we can do, but it's kind of last minute. Uh, the festival was supposed to be um, a few days from now. What it says is they decide that they should go out, proclaim, and publish it in all the towns. They don't drag their feet immediately. They say to themselves, guys, we can do this. We can obey God today. Their obedience is immediate. It is thorough. It is deliberate. And so they published all the towns saying, go out and tell everyone to gather these branches, all the things required to live in booths. Tent tent camping. Now, I've never been a camper myself. Um, Anyone who knows me knows that. God bless all those who went camping or like camping. Uh, For me, the idea of working extra hard to live like I'm homeless has never been personally appealing. But here in the Word of God, it was different because the purpose of this communal camping, where everyone in Israel was called to camp out in Jerusalem, it was not about getting in touch with the wilderness. It was about remembering the wilderness wandering. It was about reminding God's people that for 40 years, God led his people in tents in order to be reminded that God was faithful through all of that. And it said they made for themselves booths so that the people went out and they built booths on each on his roof in their courts and in the courts of the house of God in the square of the water gate, in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly and those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Amazingly, the entire nation of Israel, 40-plus thousand of them, they all gathered together after hearing the message, guys, we're going to do this for the first time, the Feast of Tabernacles, to honor our God. And they all did it. They all did it. It says that they camped everywhere they could find. They, some people who had just built their homes, they camped on their roofs. And other people, they were beside their homes. And some people who were probably traveling just put their tent wherever they could. It would have been a sign and a physical reminder that even though they were newly built homes, they were camping out. And for any other nation who would have seen this, they would have been like, what what are you guys doing? How many people, when they buy a house, the first thing they do is camp in their backyard, right? And the idea at least would have put this in their minds, that the home, the physical homes they had been given, it had come from the shame and the squalor of being exiled. It had come from God's hand that had moved them from tent to rebuilt city. It would have reminded that it was their God who had been behind it all. And it says here that for from the days of Joshua, and that's another way of saying or spelling Joshua's name, that's Joshua, son of Nun, that from the days of Joshua, it had, they had never, not in a thousand years, obeyed God like they obeyed God on that day. And though the Feast of Tabernacles, yes, had been done during Solomon's day, in Hezekiah's day, in Josiah's day, even in Ezra, their obedience had been incomplete. 
because they had not camped out like this as God had intended. The people of God, to some degree or some measure, had not had a full, wholehearted obedience like this. It was unprecedented. It was different. And it said they didn't stop there. They feasted from the first day to the last. They were supposed to feast for a segment of time, and they did all of it. And after that, they held a solemn assembly according to the rule. The people of God, they were, when they weeped at the word of God, it was not just emotion. It was not just an ecstatic experience. It was not just fire in the moment, a flash in the pan. It was heart change. The people of God were forever changed. And historically, we know that from this moment on, it is said that from this moment on, Israel became known as the people of the book. And that worship would no longer be just about the temple, but it would be about studying the law. And as we, as we look at this, it makes us ask ourselves, is our obedience like that? Is our obedience one where we see the word of God and we just obey? We do it because it's true. It doesn't matter if it's hard or unprecedented. We follow because God has spoke, because God is real, and because God is good. Now let me give you a few application thoughts as we slowly wind down. Firstly, as we look at this text, this narrative, we are reminded of one thing, that the word of God is the foundation of true spiritual change. It is the reminder that there is no true conversion that is not built on the word of God. There is no sanctification and Christian growth that is not first come from and generated from the word of God. Anything else is a cheap counterfeit. Anything else is pure emotion without substance. It is behavior modification without heart change. Unless the word of God changes us and saves us, it does not matter and it is not real. It has always been and always will be the word of God proclaimed because it is God's word. It is the gospel that is preached that saves people, not being saved by, uh, the, by some other lesser truth. Secondly, we are reminded that when we lack strength, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That when we feel it's hard to keep going on, that when we feel it's difficult to love, it's difficult to sacrifice, to forgive, and to serve, when, God, when following after God seems difficult, it is our joy of the Lord that can give us strength. It is, we could say, our joy in knowing Christ that gives us strength to persevere each and every day, to serve our communities and our families, to love our husbands and our wives, to give to our churches, and to serve God each and every day, to open our Bibles and to pray. It is our joy, our our love for Christ that should compel us and give us strength. It is the gospel. Thirdly, we are reminded that biblical obedience is immediate, deliberate, and thorough. And that is not at all to say that, sometimes, that it's not obedient when sometimes you need time or perhaps we are slow. But truly, biblical obedience gives us no room for obey God when you have the chance, if you have time, do it however you want. But biblical obedience is immediate. When, as soon as they saw what they were called to do, to hold the Feast of Tabernacles, they did it. They told everyone. It was immediate. They made plans. So also our obedience needs to be like that. 
There is no debate when Scripture is clear. It is simply follow and obey. And though our hearts are often rebellious and change is difficult and sanctification can be slow, the heart tenor of our lives should be obedience that is immediate because of who God is. And lastly, and this is the one, at least that for me, I, I find the most, uh, at least for uh, perhaps the most helpful for my own soul, is this reminder that biblical obedience will require you to do things you've never done before. Israel had never done worship like this at this point. They, they hadn't known a Jerusalem like this. When they were called to the Feast of Tabernacles, probably none of them, some of them, but many of them had not done it uh, as before. And they certainly had not done it in the way and the extent to which it was done with all the camping and all that. And it would have been easy for the people of God to make excuses. Oh, you know, it's so intrusive. We have all these plans. We have all these things we want to do. I've already made schedules for next week. The kids have this going on. I have this for work. They could have made excuses, and yet they obeyed. It's the reminder that to really follow after God, he will often call us to do things that we have never done before. Because if you understand this rightly, when someone gets saved, by nature, when you give your life to Christ, you are being called to do something you've never done before, to give everything to follow Jesus. When you share the gospel with someone, you might be called to do something you've never done before, to open your mouth and preach that there is a Savior and you're a great sinner. It is the reminder that the excuse of, well, you know, I've, it's unprecedented. I'm not, that's not me. I don't, I don't share the gospel. I don't invite people over. Hospitality is not my thing. Counseling, not me. Studying the Bible, I'm not a thinker. It is the reminder that if God can save your soul, he can change you from the inside out. That just in the way Israel was willing to completely upheave their lives to follow after God, so also we must be willing to do that. It is the reminder that God will call many of us to do good works and does call us to do a good work. And that we must never allow the fear that we haven't done that before to stop us from serving and loving and bringing the gospel to our communities. When we think about Christ, what he did, no one had ever done. Um, it was unusual. Um, God, as man, dying on the cross for our sins, and yet he did what had never been done before. Based on the commands of God and the desire of his own heart, he died on the cross for our sins, for you and I, so that we might weep at the word, so that we might have our hearts change, that our hearts might go from spiritual rubble to spiritual regeneration. In Hebrews 12, says this, and I'll leave you with this thought. It says, So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that it is your word that compels and convicts us. It is your word 
that moves us to honor you and live for you. Lord, we know that many of us here in this room have been called to great works for your kingdom. They each look different. We all have been given different skills and abilities. But Father, we pray that our obedience would be real, that it would be based on your word. We ask for strength that would come from our joy in knowing you. We love you, Lord. We give you all glory.